Hello everyone. Thanks for joining us for our Lean Startup webcast. Today's topic is Lean Enterprise, how to systematically spur growth and increase innovation in large organizations. I'm Felicia Chenko, Production Manager of Lean Startup Company. We have two events coming up very soon. Our New York conference focused on the enterprise on May 10 and 11, and our London Summit on June 13 and 14. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our speakers today are Tendai Vicky, strategy and innovation consultant and author of The Corporate Startup, and Janet Bumpus, program director for Scale Up Nation and previously managing director of Startup Bootcamp in Ellipse. Moderating today is six-time entrepreneur and lean startup faculty member, Dave Benetti. A few housekeeping notes, we'll be taking questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please <coughs> plug it by starting with a Q colon before your question. This is an hour-long program, and the recording will be available after this live webcast. Take it away, Dave. Well, thank you, Felicia, and welcome, Janet. Welcome to today. Hi. So we are going to be talking today about this wonderful area of corporate innovation and how these companies can uh, can start to systematize their their innovation processes, and 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 they know they need to do this, right? The the corporate uh, enterprise uh, per, uh, people know that that things are moving very quickly in their market. They know they're subject to disruption at any minute. So they understand and they know that they have an imperative to innovate. And they also know that they can use tools like Lean Startup uh, to help them be more effective in that, to replace the linear project planning tools that they've done in the past that, that are simply not working. So they know they have this problem and they know what the solution is, but sometimes they're not able to put those two things together. So uh, today, if, why don't you actually tell us what's the problem if, if they know that they have to innovate to survive and they know that Lean Startup is one of the best solutions out there for them, why do they sometimes have difficulty in putting these two things together? <clears throat> yeah, so that's a, that, that's a very interesting question, right? And I guess uh, whenever culture wakes up in the morning and it's hungry, what it does is it eats strategy for breakfast. So. <laughs> And, 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 and culture is not some mythical creature that comes down from the mountain, right? Culture is expressed in what leaders recognize, reward, the ideas they invest in, what kind of people get money, how success is measured, right? And so as much as they know that they need to be adopting these great lean startup methodologies, these, these design thinking methodologies, the internal management processes within the companies themselves are not designed to support this. I mean, I've literally worked with leaders that, that say to their teams, run experiments, do pivots, iterate, do some research before you build something. And then when it comes to the end of the year, when they're doing your annual review, they're asking you about how much profits you made from the core product portfolio. So there's this disconnect and, and, and companies haven't yet recognized that. Hmm. Janet, uh, have you seen that same thing with uh, your clients and those with whom you work? That same issue of that disconnect between what their stated goals are and and what their uh, what their actual goals turn out to be. Why don't you build on what Tendai's uh, answer was? Yeah, um, it's funny. Like I have found that teams actually, like product teams, take to lean startup really well and are out there running experiments and. They love it. Like, I mean, what's not to like? You're making decisions based on data. You're, you know, iterating fast. You're empowered. You're, you're finding out about customers. You're solving problems, and the teams get really going. And where I find teams tend to break down, like, what the biggest challenge for them is, they run up against kind of the way the rest of the company is working. You know, how does the money get allocated? You know, who works on what in the product roadmap? 
who gets promoted and rewarded and can move forward with their projects, right? And it's all these issues that kind of come as a mismatch. And I find it, it's, it's kind of funny, like when I work with a company, usually the where they want to start is like, oh, well, let's work. We got to be more innovative. So we're going to have a team do lean startup. And no one really kind of wants to start thinking about like, how is it that we're working? Are we creating an environment that these entrepreneurs can thrive in? Um, and that usually is what's tripping people up these days. So the environment, that's an interesting point. So how, how, like, how do you change an environment? Like an environment is an environment. Is that something that's actually changeable? And, and if so, how do you go about doing that? Um, so for me, I kind of look at it as there's kind of three different groups that I'm working with in an organization. Um, uh, the you know, senior executives, the entrepreneurs, and what I'm going to call the internal ecosystem. And that's like HR, finance, procurement, legal. All these people are kind of like, you know, the entrepreneurs are embedded in a whole group of people who have a way of working. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think as a community, we're kind of learning how to do this, right? Like Eric Reese wrote the book Lean Startup in 2008. And the first couple of years were people figuring out, like, how do you run an experiment? Like, how do you actually do that? And then, you know, big companies are like, you know, it started with Silicon Valley startups, but then eventually big companies are like, okay, we want to try it, right? And so now we as a community are kind of figuring out how to do that. Uh, right, and so right. when I first started, we didn't know. So we just, I just like, well, let's just cut and paste what we did in a startup and put it in a big company. And uh, yeah, that didn't work so well. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's funny you mentioned ecosystems and I think ecosystems is a great way to think about it. In fact, there's this person who wrote this book um, that actually says how established companies can develop innovation ecosystems. Oh, Tendai, wow, what a coincidence. Um, so, uh, you know, not only Tendai, have you obviously written on this and congratulations on, on the book. Uh, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the innovation ecosystem that, that Janet mentioned? What does that mean? What is it? How do you change it? How do you, how do you build one and how is it different than the existing ecosystems of, of corporations? Yeah, so I mean, I, I actually love what Janet said there, which is, you know, for the last half a decade or, or, or whatever, we've been trying to figure out how these methodologies actually work. In, 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 in practice. And so thinking about how innovators work, right? Well, what is it that we do? What is the build, measure, learn loop? And the build, measure, learn loop is, is simply like, you know, setting up, setting up your assumptions, running experiments to test those, and then seeing what happens. And what you're really trying to figure out while you're using that methodology, right, is whether or not they're real customer needs, whether or not you're building the right solution, whether or not you have the right business model, et cetera. And so the, 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 the problem is that the rhythm of innovators is not the rhythm of large companies. See, large companies and their culture, there's a certain rhythm that goes with the way, with, with like running core products. So when Steve Blank makes this distinction between searching and executing, what we should be really saying is large companies have to figure out a methodology of searching while executing. And, and that's how you then build the ecosystem. So we, you need to figure out management systems and tools that match the rhythm of innovators. Rather so are you suggesting that they have different systems of, of, of tools and can they live side by side or are you trying to find the combination of the two? You're trying to find the, uh, the, uh, the long distance sprinter, like, uh, like how, how do you put them together? The long distance sprinter, I love that one. So, so at the moment I'm not yet settled on a solution. I think that you can have an ambidextrous organization with parallel processes. 
some of the work that I've done in other organizations is where you try and unify the processes so that there's a recognition of where a product sits on its journey. And then you apply the right management tools and processes for that product. And so the, both, both of them can work. And I'm not yet sure you know, which one is best. But the, rec the key recognition, the key thing that people need to recognize is that you cannot manage a, a product that's just emerging. We're using the same tools that you use to manage a product that's just that's, that's been in the market for five, 10 years generating. Yeah. Janet, do you agree with that? Has that been your experience as well? Yeah. Um, and it's really important to, to kind of understand this because you know the fastest way to kill like a, a an initiative that's in that search phase is to ask them like, hey, when are you going to get to revenue, right? And all those questions. And it's funny, like when I first started working, I would work with senior executives and try to train them not to ask that question. Uh, Were you successful? I, no, I was not. <laughs> okay, so what alternative would you suggest to our listeners so that they um, can can apply a different approach? Yeah, so I try to then train the teams how to answer that question and, and work with their executives. But, you know, uh, executives are always going to ask you, like, hey, when are we going to get ROI, right? That it feels like that's the question that, that, that they love to ask. Now, when I say they will, all executives will, you know, there's a spectrum. Like some companies are further ahead in this process of figuring out how to do lean enterprise or lean startup at scale. And those would be maybe I would say your digital native companies like, you know, the Amazons and, you know, Intuit and, and Netflix. And some companies now are just, you know, for the first time hearing what is lean startup and trying to adopt it. And so you kind of have to meet with a company where they're at mm -hmm. and try to figure out, you know, how is it some working with executives and educating them and some working with teams and trying to get them to be able to work with their executives and educate them as well to say like, hey, you know, that's not an appropriate question to be asking me right now. Right. And and so uh, today, if you think about that, like she mentioned this uh, idea of digital natives, but it's not only digital natives, right? I mean, my understanding is you're working with a German pet food company and applying these techniques within there. So uh, is Lean Startup just for digital natives or how, how? what are the specific challenges when you start to work in the real world with some of your clients like that German pet food company? Yeah, so, so again, what's interesting about this whole idea that lean, agile design thinking are for digital products only, it's like myth that gets perpetuated, is, um, is that these methodologies don't emerge from digital spaces, right? Lean manufacturing is for making cars. <laughs> Zara was using this before. So we actually kind of co-opted methodologies from working with real products, if you want to say that, instead of thinking about how they can apply to working with digital technology. And then that gets flipped around and, 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 and gets pointed this way. The way I've, I've managed to frame it when I'm working with, with, with management is, um, is to kind of coach them to ask the right question at the right time. What you tend to find is this tension between innovators and leadership. Innovators insist that they want to build their, their, they want to build their vision and they should be allowed to do that without MBAs bothering them. <laughs> right? And so these MBAs, they don't get innovation. They should just let us do our thing. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg for doing innovation, I would, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be very wealthy. But uh, you know that can lead to mistakes that that innovators make, which is the reason why the lean startup movement actually comes to try and contain some of that. So uh, uh, and then these MBAs, they want to know what's going to go on, and the only tool they have is a five-year projection. They they need you to get the math right at the beginning before they give you any money. So what I try and convince them is say, listen, don't let these people give you fake math. Why don't you give them little bits of investments so they can start to get you real evidence? Why don't you give them a little bit of money so they can find out if there's a real need? 
give them a little bit of money so they can find out if they can make the right solution. Give them a little, so that so then so that you're asking the right question at the right time. Do not do, do not ask for the five year projection before uh, before you ask for the market need. So that right. way now they get a, so now they get a chance to ask questions rather right. than just let people um, do whatever. Right, they want. and you've had you've had this particular experience. I think you've touched on something really really important here, which is this concept of incremental investing, uh, where we the traditional styles that we're going to make this big plan and we're going to have this big approach and then we're going to show you what the ROI is going to be and then we're going to give you the money and eventually we're going to start to take that money away um, but it's a relatively large bet and then everybody tries to fight and control their budget and so again most people know how that turns out the incremental investing approach is one that mirrors much more what the VC world does and you make a small little angel investment then you make a slightly larger series A investment and a slightly larger series B investment um, and that's very familiar to those of us in the VC world but you actually did that at Pearson which is not a small company so why don't you tell us a little bit about how that in incremental investing approach worked at Pearson and how those things solved other problems related to lean startup yeah, so I mean, when we when we started, you know, we were working with product teams, and whenever they tried to do their work, just just like we said before, they wouldn't be able to do it just because of the way things um think th things get managed. So we thought maybe one of the things that we can solve early is try and solve how money is, is released, and then so we started working on this principle that we call the product council, which is a, an investment management group of leadership, like a cross-functional leadership that's got finance. Uh, you know, uh, product manager, product product leaders, uh, strategy folks, et cetera, et cetera, and they all get together. And what we managed to do was we, we managed to say, this is the business case, right? This is what you want to see be before you make money. Why don't we disaggregate it into its elements and see which things we can find out early and which things we can find out later. And so what we did was we said, we're gonna build this for you. We're gonna let, we're gonna let the teams build this for you by giving you the, the actual evidence. So at the beginning, when someone has an idea, all they have to say is what their idea is, and what risky assumptions underlie that idea and what they're going to do to test those assumptions and then they get so a what are the types of what are the type i mean can you talk about the actual amounts like what is the actual amount is it a hundred dollars is a hundred thousand is it a million i mean what's how what's the progression in the increments yeah so uh it, it just depends on the project but the upper limit for for what we call the exploration phase where you're testing for real customer needs is fifty thousand mm. and, and then the upper limit for for, for testing solutions is two hundred and fifty thousand and we also have this, uh, this this insistence that if you're going to start building a solution, you also have to start uh, testing the business model, so that at the end at the end of the process, you're you're then able to sort of start launching the product and actually going to scale with a validated business model. And then after that, you can make your projections because you've tested them in in the, in, in the real market. Got it. Got it. So Janet, um, so Tendai is trying to put out a, a sort of like, okay, if we're not gonna do these big plans or we're not gonna make these big projections about the future, we still wanna give them something, right? Like we can't just say, leave me alone and let me do my thing and oh, by the way, make sure that you pay me a nice fat salary the whole time, right? They're going to need something. So what do you recommend? Uh, my understanding is you've worked with a large global bank and obviously large global banks, all about planning, all about forecasting. You know, what, what were they demanding? What did you give them the importance of providing that framework or that generalized roadmap? What did it look like? Like what, what were the types of things that the executive said, okay, I can live with this, you know, maybe right. maybe you can't promise me the future, but if you can't do that, then what does it look like? Right. So when we, I was working with teams at the bank, uh, we would work, uh, we'd do agile sprints. We would do two-week sprints. And at the end of every two weeks, we would do a sprint retrospective where we look back and say, what did we accomplish over the last two weeks? And then we do a kind of projection, what do we want to accomplish over the next two weeks? 
And it's really helpful if you have your key stakeholders come to those every two week meetings um, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's a, a, you know, if not, you have stakeholders calling you all different times of the day and asking you all different questions. So you corral them, it's much more efficient if you get them in the room all at the same time. And then you can have an informed question over, you know, here's what we've accomplished over the two weeks and start getting and building in their feedback as you keep going, right? And, you know, we're taking and saying, here are risky assumptions and then focusing on like, okay, you know, are, are we getting validation information? Are we getting invalidation information? Um, really at the very, very early stages, uh, I think the most important questions to answer are, is what is the market size of this opportunity? Is this a potentially big market size or, you know, not such a big market size? You know, start looking at a business model canvas and maybe starting to say, like, what are my per unit economics? Like, am I going to make money with each unit I sell? Or is, you know, sometimes we have teams do a first pass and they're like, wow, we lose $5 for every unit we sell, right? Like, maybe we need to stop and address that now. And like, you know, maybe uh, how much of a moat can you have around your operation to use a Warren Buffett phrase, right? Um, and then start looking at validating assumptions. It's only until later on we can get traction that we can actually get some more tangible numbers. But very in the very early stage, it's really focused around, you know, am I going after a big market? And, you know, do I have a customer that has a problem? And, you know, what are my assumptions? I need to take this. And so these are the ways that you try to reframe. So if somebody asks, the executive asks, when will this make revenue? When will this make money? These are the types of questions that you steer them towards to, to mm -hmm. say, if you ask those questions, bad things will happen. <laughs> try, try to make these questions the ones that people care about. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, can you build on that? I mean, what, what's been what's been your experience in getting that culture to shift, to get them to stop asking the question? I don't know about you, but I haven't had much success in getting executives to, you know, ask questions that I want them to ask. Like, like how do you how do you like how do you make Janet's approach successful? Yeah, so I mean I mean you can imagine, and, and this stuff will probably happen to you, Janet, as well, sitting in a meeting, some guy's doing a pitch. And then the accountant guy goes, I can't invest in that because it doesn't meet the run rate or the threshold or whatever it is that a company uses as the benchmark. And then you think, okay, the conversation is over. But then the accountant guy says to the guy, no, go back and work on your spreadsheet until it meets the run rate. <laughs> so then, so, 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 so during that coaching, I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. They came here with a spreadsheet that didn't hit the run rate. Now you want them to go work on the same spreadsheet not to launch the product and test if the run rate is for real or the, or the, or the threshold is, is for real. You want them to just sort of make it up. And so when they come to that realization, they go, okay, so if we won't let them make it up, what do we do, right? And, and then you say, right, well, what you do is when, when something is successful, it's because people want it because it solves a problem and they're willing to pay for it. And, because, and if, if they're willing to pay for it, whatever it costs you to create, it should be less than what they pay. So can you just allow your teams to go answer those questions in, in a sort of systematic way before you start making them do spreadsheets? And then they go, right. And then you say, right, now what you have to be willing to do, and this is the hard thing, especially for the finance guys, is to give them a little bit of money without any revenue projection. Give them a little bit of money so they can just go test that assumption and come back and tell you what they found out. You invest in the learning. There is no projection for money coming out on the backside of that. And that's the, that's the shift that's really hard to kind of move people toward. Hmm. So Janet, when you're talking about that, when when you look at at Tendai's shift, and and yeah, I mean, obviously that's the that's the meat of this. Like that's what makes all of this difficult. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the early things that you can do to help improve your success? Right. I mean, are there any things that are important to do just right out the gate? Because 
you know, it's great for Zendai to come in there. He's very handsome. And, uh, and so, like, I, you know, I would believe him. But, you know, maybe those of us that look like me and are just not that, not as attractive as Zendai. Like, what, what, types of, what types of recommendations would you give for us to say, hey, I want to get started off so that I can, I can have more cachet in, in helping address these challenges because we know they're going to come up? Yeah. Um, I think one tactic that's really, really helpful is to get an early win early on. So I'll give you an example. Um, I was working with Philips, uh, and they were developing, they developed a product called the One Blade, uh, which uh, just briefly, uh, men tell me this is very exciting. I can't really comment on this. It's halfway between a shaver and a razor, and uh, it can take off a full beard, dry shave, and one pass. So it was kind of a revolutionary product for them. Uh, and when they had launched it uh, to their channel, Walmart made them take a test called Basie's 2, and they found out that they had a mismatch between the value proposition and the concept. And so Walmart said, we're not going to take this product. Right? This is something that they've worked on for years to develop. Um, so we, they came in and they said, hey, can you do lean startup on, you know, don't touch the product. We've worked for years on it, but just on the marketing, like how do we talk about it and the value proposition? So we said, okay, right. And you can do lean startup on a marketing campaign. And so we really quickly in six months did iterations, right. And we came up with a value proposition, uh, that really resonated with customers, brought it back to Walmart. Uh, they did the Basies 2 test again. Walmart loved it. Uh, the customers loved it. They loved the approach that was so data-driven. Uh, and now it's on the shelves in the United States and in Europe. They have a hard time actually keeping it on the shelves and it's you know exceeding the company's expectations for sales. Right? So now if you have a project like that, right, that's a huge success and a home run, right? And all of a sudden, everybody else in the organization looks up and says, what did you guys do to get that success? And that gives you a lot of permission now to go out in the organization and do something. So what made, So a couple of things, like that project, one, it's a time-bound three to six-month project, right? Like if you start off with a blank slate, like I'm going to create a new project, like that's a multi-year effort, right? And so that takes people to have a lot of faith without you delivering any results. But a three to six month time bound product, like that's great. Another good thing about that, if you look at kind of their you know, innovation strategy and portfolio, uh, normally Philips projects, I mean, if you think of shavers, it's kind of like the 35 plus crowd buys that. And this was unlocking an adjacent market, like 18 to 35, right? So it's not disruptive at all. It's completely additive. So nobody in the company is going to be losing out if this does well, right? So it's super easy for people to get on board. So if your first project, like I wouldn't recommend saying like, oh, we're going to do like an AI chat bot with a neural interface and machine learning, right? Like, no, pick something easy to go for first that can give you a big win in the company. And then that gives you a lot of permission to start saying like, hey, you know what? Like, it's like, we're the people who brought you this success. And if you want to be successful like this, not only do you have to do lean startup, but I'm going to recommend, you know, and then you can start coming with your list and asking people to change things. Um, so I really do think you need to kind of think strategically about what is your first project and where are you going to get that win.
Mm, very good, very good. So I want to also mention here that we are taking questions. Just a reminder, we are taking questions from the webcast audience. So if you have a, a question, just put it in that queue colon and put it in the chat, and uh, we'll try to filter through those and, and hopefully make it to the webcast. So Tendai, you talked earlier about the rhythm of the company and that the rhythm of the executives, the rhythm of the corporation as a whole, tends to differ from the rhythm of the innovators, right? And that can sometimes produce friction when you have that mismatch in there. So the question then becomes, okay, well, you, you clearly are going to need to get that executive buy-in to be successful. And I'm sure you have many examples of, of how that executive buy-in was critical. But how do you get it? How do you get that executive buy-in when the rhythms are very different? Like when they're accustomed to this slow and steady as she goes and, and stability and, you know, quarter after quarter uh, place where you want to go. And then, you know, Janet's recommending, no, you just want to have something that within the first 30 days, you're able to produce some small win. And that doesn't jibe with that rhythm. How do you, how do you get the executives to buy into that vision of, of, you know, thinking big, but acting small and moving really fast? Yeah, so that's really interesting. And 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 Janet, that's a really wonderful story that, that you just shared there, because it chimes with a mistake that I made early on in working with large organizations, which is I would be Mr. Know-it-all. I'd come in and go, what you're doing is wrong. What you need to do is this. And you have to have a portfolio tool, and you have to have this incremental investment, and Facebook and Google are going to eat your lunch, et cetera, et cetera. And the executive like, yeah, 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 that sounds interesting, but I'm getting my bonus at the end of the year, and you're a loser. So get out of here. So I didn't, I didn't have any impact with that. And, and what I found really helpful after like two years of making the same mistake and just bumping up, you won't, you won't get executive buy-in until you understand their problems. And then you start helping them solve those problems. So executive buy-in is not, a, it's not, a, it, it's not something you go in and you kind of preach, and then you convert people, and then people give you buy-in. You kind of have to show them the meat. And so, so I mean, uh, when I was working with a, with, a, with a large global bank, in, in, they're actually based out of South Africa, they, they were finding it difficult to get their, 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 their colleagues interested in all that. They had 14 MVPs, and nobody was coming to the lab to look at this stuff, right? And so I said, okay, well, why don't we stop doing that and start bringing our leaders in and finding out what problems they're trying to solve and work with them to solve those problems so that when we solve those problems, we can then say, hey, look, this is something else that might solve your problem. And so it's, a, it's, 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 it's very interesting because you can't get buy-in unless people are actually convinced at a gut emotional level that what you're doing is the right thing, and that's the power of getting an early win. Mm. Janet, do you uh, do you agree with that? Can you build off of that concept yeah. or give us some more tips on executive buy-in? Right, um, and I think actually just what Tendai said right there is super important. It's also, you know, it's giving people like the tools and the facts and the figures, but a lot of this is an emotional thing, like winning over people's hearts and minds into doing this, right? And so, you know, the first couple of times that we, I, we tried cut paste what they do in startups in a big company, we would find like, you know, the teams would be going along fine. And then, you know, about after six weeks, everything fell apart. And we did that, tried to figure out why. And we found out usually it's something to do with some executive buy-in or somebody in that internal ecosystem not buying in. Uh, and, you know, and then we would go try to solve the problem. And then, it, you know, after a while, we're like, maybe we should try to get buy-in, you know, earlier before the problem arises. Uh, and, you know, so we would run an executive session or run sessions with the ecosystem, uh, people in the ecosystem to try to get them to buy in, right? And um, sometimes, you know, I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. Like I was working with a very large 
uh, global law firm, right? And so for the executive session, they said, well, we can only meet from 7 to 10 p.m. at night because we have to do billable hours. But I came in there and I gave them all my best arguments about, you know, oh, you know, Silicon Valley spending $400 billion a year on legal tech startups, right? Like the World Economic Forum just came up with a report that, you know, legal is one of the top number five in the list of industries that's going to lose jobs due to automation. And then we did uh, an environment scan. And that's uh, an exercise I think, Tendai, you cover in your book where people think about what's coming on, right? And, you know, all the managing partners then came back at the end of that and was like, no, I don't think there's a threat here. Like, I think we're fine. Like, we've, we've got a moat. Like, we've got a super complex business, right? And we've got it's relationship driven. And so I know at that point, like, anything I do from then on out with the company is just nothing more than innovation theater, right? Like, you don't have the hearts and minds of the senior leadership. And you compare that to, like, Amazon. Jeff Bezos recently wrote that letter about day one, right? Like, it's a totally different mindset. And so I find the most effective way to change people's hearts and minds is through kind of experience. So like a quick win is a way to like people to like say like, Oh, um, uh, if I can, can I give another example? Uh, I was running, we run like a a week long innovation masterclass sometimes. And in the masterclass, we put a third of the people are entrepreneurs and, and probably two thirds come from the innovation ecosystem, the HR, finance, procurement, legal, right? And they come in and on Monday, they're like, they come up with an idea for a uh, project they wanted, a product that they think their company should launch. And we're like, great. So we put them on it. They do some customer development. They go out, talk to customers. You know, by Wednesday, they're running experiments and stuff like that. And I remember actually it was a Wednesday afternoon and uh, one of the guys, he was from sales, he started off the week with an idea that he thought was brilliant. Like, this is going to be a great idea for the company, right? And then he did his customer development, and he found that nobody wanted this product. Nobody cared, right? And so it's Wednesday, and his team is all pivoting and thinking about it. And he said, hey, Janet, can I ask the class a question? I was like, sure. And he's like, is anybody else here in the room pivoting on their idea? Literally, and he's in a room with like 40 people who are his peers, right? And literally every single hand went up, and everybody was pivoting on their idea. So, I mean, it's one thing to tell people like, oh, most first idea, research has shown that most first ideas are not good ideas and you're going to have to maybe pivot because you know what people hear when you say that. What they hear is most ideas are not good idea, but my idea is great, right? And you could feel like all of a sudden the realization settling in in a different level of like, oh, none of our first ideas were good, right? And now that's something like, that's starting to move the hearts and minds and that emotional buy-in of people to understand what's going on. So next time, even though this person is in sales or legal or finance or procurement, like when an entrepreneur comes to them, they have a greater understanding of what they're doing and they're better able to engage in this process. Right, Right. super, super. So we do have a question from the audience and I'm going to focus it on Tendai to start. So the question is, is there a typical champion within an organization and that champion is left undefined so i'll let you define that any way you like so is there a typical champion what what do they do what's their title what 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 does she do to help make the project successful um do they come up from the product do they come from the hr finance are they executives who start like who are the who are the champions within the organization so there is no typical champion really what usually happens is the product folks the ones that are dealing with the difficulty of making stuff people want. Usually they're the ones that grab onto lean quite quickly. But the the problem with having a, 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 a champion that is not politically influential 
is that the, the, the limitations to their championship, right? They 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 don't they don't um they don't they, they they can't really move the needle that much. Whereas if you are lucky enough to get an exec that gets it, then you can start to work with them to be your champion. So and let so, me ask a different question. Do you need right. a champion? You're a product manager in the you've got the idea, you've got the idea. It happens to be a brilliant idea, but it's gonna hit yeah. the rocks of corporate corporate uh, you know uh, the corporation. Like, do you need a champion to push it over the edge, or is it sufficient to just be a really good product manager with a really good idea? All right, so let me fit your question in, in an even bigger context, right? It also goes to this, it, this debate about where do you put an innovation lab? Should the mm -hmm. innovation lab be in the mothership or away from the mothership, right? And so this, because then, then because that also speaks to the question of whether or not you need a champion, right? Okay. And so this is what I always tell innovators. You can run a guerrilla movement if you want, which is you're doing your stuff online because Lean Startup is pretty cool at giving you cheap ways to test ideas. If you're running a guerrilla movement, you build an MVP, you don't have to ask for much resources. You could probably use the same budget for your core products to, to run some experiments. But at some point, you're gonna have to surface from the depths of the guerrilla movement and ask somebody in the organization to make a decision about taking the product to scale, giving you some more resources, using a sales channel, and at that point, if you don't have a champion, or like we, or like Tristan Cromer likes to call them, a, a, a diplomat representing your cause, then the 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 the, uh, the 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 mortality rates of those kinds of ideas is pretty high. Okay. Because it, because it's on because it's on nobody's yearly plan. It's on nobody's strategic view for the year, right? It's it's just something that you've been working on. Right. So so, so you do need champions you do need people that kind of represent you in, in and, and kind of provide you cover at their right. so, so so let's let's build on that so you're the product manager you've done that you've done your gorilla you've been underground you've started to collect the data and you're looking around for the champion um first wave a magic wand and say who do you want that champion to be right um but 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 i guess more important if you can't wave the magic wand how do you convince them like you say you need to find them like you need to find them like where do you start like, like, who do you go to first? Obviously, it's different for every company, but like, where, wh what's the heuristic you use to find that person? And then what do you do to convince that person? Do you show them the greatness of your idea? Do you show them the results of your experiments? What if the results of your experiments are mixed? Uh, like, like, how do you convince, how do you find that person and how do you convince them? So I don't ha I I don't have a, a real answer for that. I want the magic bullet to die. Come on. <laughs> there is no magic bullet really because people that work in companies, if you work in a company and you kind of know your managers and you know the leadership, you kind of know the kind of cats that get it, the people that get it, who you can go see, you know, the 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 there's a specific woman that's leading this particular movement and you've listened to a speaker at a company get together, she gets it, so you go and speak with her. And and what you're not and what you're doing is you're not trying to convince people of a particular thing like because if you're not convinced of a particular product vision then they might get the product vision but not get the methodology that got you to that product vision what you want people to buy into is the process this methodology of creating innovation because that's repeatable and you can come up with more and more stuff so that's what you want a champion that gets that another champion that gets that people should be working on cool stuff and so you kind of have to kind of choose and pick and then they will provide you air cover but you you do need it in a sense, and Janet, I don't know if I'm uh, kind of rambling. No, no, I'm I'm with you. Um, it's interesting. So I think, and also uh, the ability to get a champion kind of depends on who's on the team. So we've had some teams that are 
you know, great people, but they're super junior in the organization and they kind of don't know how to maneuver in the organization. Um, on the other hand, like right now, uh, we're working with Atlon, which is a car leasing company that's about 100 years old, right? And this is car leasing, like if you're a salesperson, you might get a car. Like they're one of the people that handle that. So it's a very old school business. Uh, but, you know, Daimler just bought them for a little bit north of a billion dollars. So they're, you know, a substantial size, they're about a thousand employees. Um, and so they, you would think this would be an old school stodgy, like, oh, they, they don't get it, right? They're not, they're old school native or old school company. But uh, they brought, they're very, very forward thinking and innovative. And uh, so they have a team that they're working with. And the, everybody on this team has worked for this company for about 15 years, right? So we're not talking, and they're not like, you know, digital millennial hipsters with their oolong tea, right? These are car guys, right? And 15 years experience in the company. So uh, what they got for their champion is actually the CEO, because the guy who's leading the team has worked there for 15 years and knows the CEO as he came up through the organization as well. So when we do our sprint review and we ask for the stakeholders to come, the CEO is showing up at that meeting. And you know, if you got the CEO showing up at that meeting, you got every other stakeholder showing up at that meeting. And they take it very, very seriously. Um, so I think it also is, you know, you have to think about when you're putting together a team, who's on that team and do they have the relationships in the organization in order to move things forward? So let me ask you a concrete question and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you both on the spot. Tendai, you get a little easier because you're gonna know the question's coming. Janet's just gonna get sandbagged <laughs> uh -oh, with it. Nervous. <laughs> if you cannot find that champion, like mm. you follow this advice, you try to identify, you're using like all this, you, you, you've run your experiments, you think you have something there, but you're not able to convince a champion and you're, you're still in the large corporation, what do you do? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, it's funny because I'm thinking back to some of the, the teams that I've worked with have stalled out, right? Uh, and one of the teams, let's say, so they won an innovation challenge, right? And then they had this idea to help like uh, banking in Africa, right? And that's a super thing that's like an emotional, like, oh, everyone's like, feels good. Like we're doing something for Africa, right? And so they came into, you know, we did an internal lab and they're really, they were a great team, right? And they pivoted and they're working, they're getting customer insight. Uh, and then they, you know, went off into to kind of scale within the organization. And I about like hmm, eight, ten months later, they they had all quit, right? And the problem was, is the majority of the company is focused on Europe, right? And there, there's nobody really in the company that the business is aligned to Africa, right? So it's a great idea, it's a great feel good thing, but it's not fitting with where the company wants to go. The strategic priorities. There's no champion that's going to say we're going to do it because you know what. It's, it's, it's hard work launching a new product and you need the company to, to be at your backs, all right? Um, another yeah. team I saw, they never managed to get a champion support and so they never really managed to get like permission to continue. Uh, so they hung in for about nine months until everybody in the team quit in you know frustration, right? Okay. And they even made an offer to the company to say, can we buy out the IP? Or we'll give <laughs> you about 250K. And the company, yeah. so you know, I have to say, if someone hasn't got a champion and it's not aligned with the strategic priorities, it's really hard. Yeah. Can die? Really What's the answer? Quit in frustration. I think that, frustration. <laughs> that was what I was looking for. Quit in frustration. That's yeah. the because there's no way that you're going to be able to get it off the ground. I mean, it's like even, you know, the whole idea of let's have an innovation challenge. Let's have everybody submit ideas. And then at the end of that, it's like, guess what you've won? Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. The opportunity to write a 30-page business case. 
Yeah. That then gets rejected, that then doesn't go anywhere, and then people quit in frustration. So yeah, you do really need champions. Yeah, and I think that that's that's that is an important point. I mean, I, I everybody here is collecting dollars from things they've heard a million times, but I think we've all gotten that calls from that product manager who is really earnest and really believes in the method, and they're like, you know, you need to come in here and convince my executive team, and it's like, good luck, buddy. <laughs> like yeah. we don't do that. Certainly don't do that well. Okay, like, fantastic. Um, I yeah, think I had like uh, so I was working with one company, and you know. Uh, when you're trying to start doing lean startup in a company, like you're breaking a lot of processes, right? Like, so I'm going in there, you know, and I'm talking to, you know, the web team and I'm like, okay, can you put this up on the web? And they're like, well, our normal process, it would take three weeks, three months to get it up on our corporate website. And they're like, but for you, we'll do it really fast in six weeks. And I'm like, okay, can we have it by Wednesday? Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I'm breaking all these processes. And if you are backed by, you know, like, oh, I run a business unit that has 50 million in revenue, like you can break some rules, right? You can do that. Yeah. But if you're trying to like do something different, like you're the first one in your company or, you know, one of the early adopters of doing this. And you, so, you know, you're showing up and saying, I'm going to try to break all the rules here and I'm backed by $0 revenue. Like yeah. that's a really, really tough situation unless someone way high up is saying, you know what? We're doing this. Yeah, and the champion. Yeah, necessary but insufficient. You need a lot more than that, but it is yeah. it is a requirement. So, um, Tendai, a question specifically for you that came from the audience. When we're talking about this rhythm of innovation, right. what is the best approach to scale up innovation inside large organizations? Let's say you you found something. Let's say you you've started to hit you know, if not clear product market fit, close to product market fit, and it's time to actually start scaling up. Um, should there be different innovation speeds within the organization? Uh, and and if so, what, what are they, and how do you deal with that concept of, of innovation speed impedance? Yes, so it is true that um, there should be different speeds uh, it, 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 when, you're, when you're trying to manage you know, innovation within a large organization. I think, I, I think that this whole idea of like matching up the rhythms is actually is actually really 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 uh, important. And from from my perspective, especially with some of the work that, that I've done with 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 Pearson, we have to start thinking about it from a strategic perspective. Which is, what is the role of strategy within a large company? Right, the role of strategy within a large company is to try and visualize the future, and then try and see how they can use investments to get to that future. And so we say, okay, so you're visualizing the future. How are you going to get to that future? And and what is the innovation gap? And then that innovation gap informs us what we're going to invest in to cover the gap. And then that messaging gets cascaded throughout the company so that all the investors who are managing budgets in the company know what sort of, what sort of ideas people get, um, can actually work on. And that's a very important thing to give that strategic guidance to innovation teams rather than just to let a thousand flowers bloom, which is some of the stuff that people say all the time. Because if you let a thousand flowers bloom, one flower will bloom and it won't be on anyone's strategic goal. And so you want to make sure that those things are actually lined up. And that's what we mean by matching rhythms. And then, and, and then when you're actually kind of making those those kind of lean incremental investments that we were that we were speaking about earlier, the the, the team that's getting ten thousand dollars to go and talk to customers and figure out whether or not there's a real need works faster than the team that's um, now in the market on working at scale, right? And trying to actually ramp up the the, the product, like the the rhythm with which that team checks back in with the stakeholders is a much longer cycle than the rhythm that the team that's kind of running experiments and, and iterating checks in. And what we've set up is, is, is a process for, it's, it's a single product council, it's the same six, 12 people, but they've got all this, they, they, we kind of coach them and train them to ask the right questions at the right time. 
and have different expectations for different things along the innovation journey. Right. So what we say is bring your product portfolio. We have this set of questions and let's map each product on where it is. This one hasn't figured out customer needs. This one hasn't figured out the right solution. This one hasn't figured out business model. This one isn't figured out. And then we say, right, that's your portfolio of products. Now, what is the next best thing that each one of these products can do to move to the next step? And how much do you need to invest in that product in order for it to move in that direction? And then that's the rhythm of like managing it. With, with so you said, but you said something there that's pretty interesting. I think maybe certainly counterintuitive to people that are within corporation because you said things that, that could be in conflict. So help, help me understand the conflict. You're giving people less money so they move faster. Right. How is that possible? Like in corporate, if you it's the iron triangle, right? You want, you know, you pick three. So if I give you more money, you'll move faster, right? Isn't that the way that it works? Well, it all depends on what you move. It all depends on where you're going, I guess, or, or what the movement is for. So if I give you a million dollars to go find out if customers have a real need, I won't see you for a year because you got a million dollars to spend doing interviews and focus groups and et cetera, et cetera. But if I give you $5,000 and I say, go find early adopters and, and speak with them and let us know within two weeks what these people think about the idea, then you, know, you, you, you actually move faster. There's another paradox in, in, in that, by the way. We also tell companies that they should have a balanced portfolio, so maybe 70% of their investments in core products, 20% in adjacent, and 10% in like transformational. And then we tell them that that 10% in transformational can be invested in a lot more ideas than the 70% in core. And they're like, how do you do that? And we say, well, actually, what you want to do is make small investments, right? So the 10% is a small amount of money, but the way you're investing it, you're investing it in loads of little ideas, and then you're doubling down on only those things that are going to work. And those are the things that over time transition to your core. So you do end up with five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 things but you started off with maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 things because you were making small investments and ideas up front. And so all of those paradoxes are, are things that management have to kind of come to grips with. And sometimes you explain to them, then they, then, they, then, then, then they try it and then they go, right, okay, now we get the rhythm. And then over time, you kind of have to kind of just keep coaching them. Got it. So that's great. And that's the happy path. Um, Janet, let's talk about when that doesn't work out. Let's talk about when you make this and, and you don't have any revenue to begin with, right? Because mm -hmm. we're just starting off. So what are the metrics that we do show them? Like if you can't move the, the revenue metrics because there is none and you've got your champion and they believe it, but they need something, like give them something, like give me something, I gotta go to the board, I'm willing to fight for you guys, but what are you gonna give me so that they don't come in and try to kill this thing saying, oh my God, this is such a waste of money, it's not It's not doing anything yet. How do you, right. how do you what are the metrics that you give them? Right, um, so it's interesting, I just ran into this recently with um, uh, some a company that I'm working with where they uh, are, doing their sprint reviews and they've got their senior executives coming in and one of the senior executives uh, really doesn't have a lot of exposure to lean startup or the project they're working on um, and actually uh, it took them eight weeks to get on the calendar to get the senior executive to get there so that's a problem right there but the senior executive shows up and is like I don't feel like this is a big customer problem. Like, I don't understand what you guys are going after. So right now, here's a team. They've been out there validating. They're getting their story. I mean, they don't have any met revenue metrics. And they're faced with a stakeholder that's like, I, I don't, I'm not really buying this. Like, I don't see it as a problem, right? And they're not, and that stakeholder is not making that decision based on data, right? It's just kind of that old school way of projecting out kind of general feelings. Right. Um, so my advice to the team at that point in time um, 
and, and this is not really a metric. Like I, I, we only have this kind of time qualitative. It's like, okay, go back out and talk to your customers again and bring a camera and come back with a video of a customer being like, wow, this is a huge problem and I'd be willing to pay someone money if they could give me a solution, right? Because what we're going again is I'm trying to get that emotional move. So, right, like if I don't have metrics, I'm going to try to express to the stakeholders that this is a problem, there's customers who have it and they're willing to pay money to solve it, right? Got it. And then we come back to, you know, like, can you tell me market size per unit economics? Can you say like, you know, we're validating assumptions and like give me data from these customer interviews to say like, I've identified a problem that exists in the market, right? Got it. Today, is that, uh, is that something that you've done in the past or do you have any other offer, a thing that you can offer our listeners on uh, specific metrics when you don't have the revenue metric, it's just not there yet. What, what are the metrics that you, or or approaches like Janet has mentioned that you can, then you can suggest. Yeah, and I love that question because that question is actually based on the premise that the executive that you're about to show the, the metric doesn't get it. They want to see the revenue metric, right? And so you have to then to do something to, to kind of move them along. And and, and what I found in, and, and some of the work we do with early product consoles is that like a member of our team will observe the product console and then give them feedback after the product console to say you were asking that team the wrong question. Because what we want to do is to start to create within the uh, executives the expectation of asking the right question at the right time and expecting to see a customer need metric when a customer need metric is needed to make a decision. And expecting to see a solution metric when a solution metric is needed to make a decision. And, and expecting to see a business model metric when a business model metric is needed to make a decision. And then expecting to see a five-year projection at the right time to ask for a five-year projection to make a decision. That way, you, you then don't need to think about what you should bring to show them. They're the ones that are asking you. We've given you five grand. You better come back and tell us there's a real need because if there isn't, we're not giving you any more money, right? And so these are the kind of, kind of um, ways of working that we've been trying to get. Great. So that's a super good example, but now I'm going to throw you a, a, a curveball. So you've done that. You spent the money. You're moving quickly. You've got customer feedback. But you've now got the customer feedback, and the customer feedback gives you a clear indication of a pivot. Like, like what we we're working on is not going to work, but wow, I got such amazing insight on this other thing. How then do you come back? Because the executive says, okay, wait a minute. I gave you five grand to do this, and you wasted the money. Like, I wanted to get something, and you gave me nothing. Now you're telling me something different, and then six months from now, you're going to tell me something different. Like, like, like how, how do you convince that executive that the money that they spent hasn't been wasted money? I can, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh, Tendai, Tendai, you start, and then Janet, I'll give you a chance. So, I, so what I do, right, and uh, they call me the exec whisperer, if you want to call it. I spend all my time, my, my whole entire life, telling execs that that's what happens, and you should expect it to happen. And with the templates that we've designed in Pearson for teams to submit to product consoles, the first page of the, of the template says, what did you learn? I learned this. Second page, what do you want to do? Stop, pivot, or, 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 or persevere? And, and, and the team chooses to also, so, so the thing is actually coming to the exec to read before the meeting with these options in place and, and, and kind of visible. And then the execs have to make a decision about whether or not they have, they still have the resources to let the team pivot or not. But to pretend that you can just carry on after you found no customer need, this is something that we coach execs to not do. Hmm. You must be a really successful consultant because I have all these. <laughs> That's right. I, have arrow, I have arrows in my back, bro. I have like scars. <laughs> I recommend the innovation theater approach. It's much easier to sell. <laughs> Janet, how about you? 
Um, so, you know, I had the situation with a team that, you know, they were actually working on an idea that their senior executive would give them like, oh, this is a great idea, go out and do. And they went out and did a whole bunch of customer interviews. And they had, you know, identified like four or five risky assumptions that would need to be true for the idea to work. Uh, and I think they did 23 customer interviews and they came back that no, like, like, no, it's not going to work, right? So they're really nervous. Like they have to go tell a very senior person in the organization that their idea is terrible, right? right. Um, so, you know, we worked with them a lot and, and they came up with one slide that was super powerful where they listed here are the risky assumptions and then they had, you know, the 23 customers that they talked to and they did red X's and all the boxes. And you can just see, it's like a sea of red X's, right? And when presented with such a data-focused approach, like, you know, the executive looked at it and he's like, I get it, right? Like, if you give people data, like, no one wants to be like, no, ignore the data, we're just gonna keep going. Like, and he got it and he was super, actually, he was great. He was super, super supportive. He's like, wow, we've learned something. And then they came up where he said, okay, they not only had that one super powerful slide that was a sea of red X's, they said, we have three options of how we can continue. And they had proposals for this is the next, this is where we think we should go. And they could then have a very interesting conversation about what do we do next? And it was actually a really great experience. I mean, the team, almost, they were having a heart attack going into the meeting, but it actually went really well. Cause I mean, it's, it's a scary thing to tell someone. Like, yeah, there's no question. It's a scary somebody at the end of the day. And we call that the hippo, right? The highest paid yeah. person's opinion. And the hippo wins out if there's the absence of data. And at least, mm -hmm. at least with data, you have a chance. Um, what happens to die if the executive comes in and says, fire those customers? You guys obviously don't don't do your research right. Uh, you know, go revamp the spreadsheet, go fire those customers, and find me customers that agree with my idea. Is that a is that a winning approach? That that's actually much more likely to happen. So yeah, you know, yeah. That situation is actually a really great situation where the exec got it. It's actually much more likely to happen that the exec like get out of here. And then, and then they're like, who told you to run experiments? And then they start dropping your name in it. Like, yeah, no, you know that Tendai guy you have working with us? He's the one that told us to run experiments. Like, well, ignore Tendai. Built the thing, like I said, because I've already promised the board that we're going to have this thing in, in, in the market. And so, uh, you know, that's why, for me, I, I call it the full frontal assault. Like, you can run a guerrilla movement, or you can do a full frontal assault. I'm an advocate of the full frontal assault. Like, just take this, pick up the fight and work with the execs and try and see if you can actually change the the, the the ecosystem within your company because if not it's going to be this constant you don't know whether or not you're going to have an idea that's going to ever succeed this kind of like hit and miss hit and miss hit and miss and so you're ducking and weaving all the time and i i don't quite enjoy that way of living life as an, as an innovator got it so when you're the so yeah i mean it, it, you can choose to die a long slow painful death or you can choose to die a quick death um but in both cases you're going to die uh so you get to pick um so knowing that and janet knowing that you have to be have nerves of steel to go and <laughs> present that and tendai knowing that you have to go in saying we're going to do the full frontal assault and it's much more likely that i'm going to get mowed down than i am going to be actually prevail like what is the best and this builds on a question we got from the audience what's the best team composition like who's the type of person that you're looking for on that team to help build the team to make it successful and i'm going to say this in two ways one of which might be a little bit uncomfortable for those watching but like not only to build your team around that but for the person in that job as the innovator to say you know it was really great when i watched the social network and everything turned out fantastic but like like am i really the right person maybe i'm a corporate person after all how how can they know 
whether or not as an individual innovator, how they can build their team and also at a more personal level, how they can know themselves, how they can make themselves the most successful. And uh, Tendai, why don't we, Tendai, we'll start with you and then Janet will move to you. Okay, uh, I was hoping Janet would start because I didn't Janet, know. let's start with you and then Tendai, you can, you can fill okay. it out. Um, you know, I often joke that you should go to HR and find the person with the fattest file and pick them as your entrepreneur because like that's someone who's not afraid of going down to the mat and fighting for what they believe. But um, more practically, I would say when I'm looking at making a team, I'm looking at a couple of different things. Like one, I want, you know, the seniority level that we're talking about before. Like I want to make sure I have the right seniority level. I also want to have a diversity of skill sets on the team. So we say, you know, a hacker, a hipster, and a hustler. Like I want someone who can like build a prototype. I want someone who is my hustler, would be my business person. And then a hipster, maybe someone who has some UX skills. I would also put a project manager on there. Um, uh, I would also look for a diversity of there's some people who are really like idea focused and want to push the envelope and think big ideas and there's some people who are really execution focused right uh, and um, I'm here in the Netherlands actually where we really like our bikes and I, I learned a new term that I really like it's called a look I'm probably gonna say it wrong Luchfeester, which means an air biker right which are people who stay in the realm of ideas and they're pedaling really really hard and they don't they're not making any progress right and mm -hmm. so you need someone to pull them down to the ground and ground them and then you can get traction right so we have some teams right now that are all air breakers right and they have great discussions on everything but they're making no progress so we gotta you know insert some people who are really execution focused and bring them into the team it's also i think important to have diversity about uh, men and women they've shown those teams are more resilient as well And it's interesting when you think about how you put together and how you're recruiting for this program, right? Um, these innovation teams that end up being all air bikers, right? They're very idea focused team if you look at it They came out through an innovation channel challenge where the it was being promoted as like hey Do you have a great idea to make this company better? You know submit your idea, right? If you talk about that innovation challenge as far as like hey, do you want to build a business? You're going to get some more execution people. And the same thing happens with gender. Like if you say, hey, we're looking for risky, you know, bold innovators, right? You're going to get more men applying. If you talk about it in general about like, hey, we're looking for some people who want to work collaboratively together in a team, you're probably going to get more women. So really being cognizant of how you're talking about what it is you want, then you're going to get different people stepping forward. Right. And so, and I really don't care the methodology of what you can, you can run an innovation challenge. You can hand select the teams. You can put a job application out internally to select them. But like thinking about, I want my ideal team is going to be, have someone who has some seniority on it, a diversity of skills, a diversity of kind of mind, like, you know, orientations, like you want the big thinkers and the executors and, you know, other things like that. And then you can kind of start to get really good teams. Got it. So we're just about up with the time. Thank you for that, Janet. So uh, Tendai, I'm going to I'm going to give you a pass on answering that particular question, and instead I'm going to ask you just um, just to go ahead and help wrap things up. So we started off with this concept of of how do we build this in the organization? How do we systematize it? How do we how do we make innovation a, a concrete feature of the corporation? And we talked about this dual challenge of uh, the we know that we need to innovate. 
we know that this lean startup works and what is the gap in between? So based on everything we talked about, what's the like one piece of advice that you want to leave people with to say when we're thinking about the problem and the solution, uh, what's the, the one bit of advice, of course, besides buying your book and hiring you, uh, number two, I should say, number two is uh, how do they, how should they approach this uh, in terms of helping make, uh, helping bridge the gap between the problem and the solution? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that like, we were recently recruiting for members of our team in, in Pearson, and, and two things that I was, I kept asking, which had nothing to do with content and knowledge. I, I just kept saying, what is your ability to take a punch and stay at the same demeanor, right? And then the second thing is, for me, is authenticity. They, like, I prefer to work with people that have an authentic interest in ensuring that a company actually does this work well. That, that I really care about getting executives and teams and working the right way to make sure that products are actually successful and companies have balanced portfolios and, and actually useful innovation strategies. And so the authenticity of, 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 of the work is actually my passion. And so I, my pet peeve is innovation theater, like acceler corporate accelerators for PR purposes only. That kind of stuff just drives me crazy. And so that's what I'm, that, that's my takeaway message. It's like, forget the theater, it's time to get real because the theater is actually doing a disservice to the kind of work that we're trying to do out here. So Excellent, great. And Janet, same question. How do we bridge the gap between the problem that we know and the solution that we know, but uh, how do we make them actually work? Go buy Tendai's book. <laughs> All the answers are in there. <laughs> Thank you, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, uh, thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you to everyone that watched. Thank you for all the questions that were submitted. I apologize we didn't get a chance to get to every question, but uh, I do hope that, that everybody had a, a good uh, insight. So, Janet, thank you very much. Tendai, thank you very much. We hope to see you both, uh, I guess, in London for both of you, or uh, and of course the conference in New York, and then uh, other people who also want to learn besides buying Tendai's book. Uh, you can also attend the Lead Startup Conference, New York, London, and then later on this year in San Francisco. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Felicia. Back to you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. This wraps up our show. For our community on the East Coast, we have our New York conference happening next week on May 10 and 11. For the folks across the pond, you can catch Tendai and Janet at the upcoming London Summit happening on June 13 and 14. Also join us for our upcoming Lean Startup Night London meetup on May 16. Check out all these events at leanstartup.co.